Here in Luke chapter number 20, we are in a section that I've just titled Jesus and the Pharisees. We skipped it last week. I gave you a psalm instead. But it is certainly a unique passage of Scripture. The Pharisees are determined to get Jesus. They're going to get Him. (laughs) And uh, they started, last time we were here, we saw that they raised a question about Caesar. And they said, should we render our taxes to Caesar or no? And Jesus told them, you give Caesar what's Caesar's, you give God what's God's. Wonderful answer that is. Now they are going to try to trip Jesus up again with another question. And this is a question about the resurrection. So we move here today from Caesar to Moses. And then Jesus is going to kind of take over the agenda. And he'll speak to them from Moses over to David. So let's read from verse number 27 down through the end of this uh, chapter we'll study today. But just for now, we'll read from verse 27 through 40. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny there is any resurrection. And he asked them, saying, Master, Moses wrote unto us, if any man's brother die, having a wife, and he die without children, that his brother should take, up, should take his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. There were therefore seven brethren, and the first took a wife and died without children. The second took her to wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in the like manner, the seven also. And they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had her to wife. And Jesus answering said unto them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they that shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Neither can they die any more, for they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he calleth the Lord God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, for he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said, And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for time in your word. And thank you for this unique discourse that we are able to study between Jesus and those who would consider themselves the heads of religion in that day. Help us now as your church to receive well the teaching that you have from us, for us from these passages. May we grow be built up and serve you well, knowing what your word has for us here. Come Holy Spirit, conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, the son. This we pray in Jesus's name. Amen. So in an attempt to trap Jesus, initially they ask about Caesar. The goal being one of two things. Either Jesus will seem like an insurrectionist against the Romans and the Romans will kill him or He'll lose favor in eyes of this population of Jews who seem to really like him because they, at another point we just read, they said they would have taken him then, but they were afraid of the crowd. And so they thought, well, if he tells everybody to pay their taxes, they're not going to like that. And so that was their goal. And Jesus answered them well, and they did not accomplish their goal. Here, they... A different group. So we started with chief priests and scribes. Now we're going to move to Sadducees. They kind of abandon the secular portion of their argument and they go straight to Old Covenant doctrine. 
And they're just going to kind of try to trip him up on Bible. And before we ever even get into this, I, I want us to maybe laugh or think about in a humorous way what exactly is happening here. The Word made flesh, dwelling among them, is before them, and they're trying their best to trip him up on what? The Word. And that's a wonderful thing. You ever had someone tell you something that you know is exactly wrong? They say, your birthday's in April, right? And you say, no, it's in March. No, it's not. It's in April. (laughs) I am me. I know when it is. Isn't your name Larry? No, my name's John. No, your name is Larry. This is basically what they're doing with Jesus here. They're saying, what about about this? He's a master at answering them. And I don't want us to miss one, one bit of what he does here. I'm not going to be able to get it all to you, but I hope you will study on this in your brains. We'll just wrap around the depth of Jesus's answer and his his care with his words as he goes at this discourse with them. It's a it's a mastery. It's a thing to to know. So from questions of Caesar to questions of Moses, let's begin in verse 27. Then came to him certain of the Sadducees, which deny that there is any resurrection. And they ask him so. The Sadducees. We need to get to know these people. They differ from the Pharisees doctrinally. In fact, this, the Sadducees would be that group who said like, well, we all believe this, but, but we believe this. We're in this upper escalon of belief system. That's why some of you sit over here and some of you sit over there, right? They, they, they thought we've got our doctrine down better than those people across the aisle from us here. But in their... Um, attempt to be completely sound on the on the doctrines of scripture they had they just left out entire portions of the scripture and they've they've really kneecapped themselves in their relationship with God now Luke tells us here specifically what they do they deny the resurrection which is a sad way to live where's the faith where's the hope what an odd thing for people who say we operate according to the bible to say we don't believe in life after death Now, we know from other portions of Scripture that the Sadducees also deny the existence of angels or demons. Got to leave out a lot of the Scriptures to get there, don't you? They got rid of or they didn't believe in the validity of oral traditions and in the practice of any of the Old Covenant texts outside of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses there. The Sadducees did not believe in divine providence. Now, there are those in Christianity who hold to any form of some of these doctrines. There are those who would say, we don't believe that God is providentially working among men. In fact, we think he created us and just kind of left us down here and he will intervene in the final. But for now, he's just kind of hands off in that. I hope you don't find yourself there. In fact, we as we think through historically in church history, how the Sadducees were described. The, the, the first example I'll give you is from the children's song that we sing. I don't want to be a Sadducee because they're so sad, you see. And boy, I'll tell you, if you don't believe in an eternal life, if you don't believe in life after death, if you don't believe that God is providentially working in the affairs of men, it's a pretty sad existence. One author called the Sadducees the priestly aristocracy. Thought that was a nice way to put it. Kent Hughes, a good Bible scholar, he describes them as insular, patrician, heartless, philosophical materialists. 
I don't even know what all those words mean, but it didn't sound like he likes the Sadducees there. So the Sadducees bring about a question of the resurrection. Their question involves a lesser known practice given in Deuteronomy called the Leveret marriage. How many of you would say this morning, I could give you an understanding of the Leveret marriage? I've heard of it. I'm aware of what it means. All right. So two of us in here. And I got to tell you, only because I begrudgingly was forced to write a paper about the Leveret marriage in college. You had up to this point of time to pick your topic. And it was a hermeneutics class, how to study the Bible, how to interpret the Bible. And if you didn't pick your topic, then the professor gave you a topic. And I said, you know what? If he picks a topic for me, it's going to be something that he knows that I could write a paper about versus me writing something that's going to be a brick wall. So I'm just going to let him pick. And he said, all right, Strickland, you can write about the Leverett marriage. Man. So I've forgotten a lot of it now, but I got to know more about this practice than I ever wanted to know. It is a very unique thing. It did clear up for me why some verses of Scripture are in the Bible that I'm not going to mention to you here in mixed company. But I'd always wondered why the Bible says certain things. Well, according to this teaching, it cleared up a lot of those things for me there. I don't think you have to be uh, well-versed in this particular practice. Only if you just know what is said here, you will be fine. So this practice was a practice instituted in the ancient days to keep a bride whose husband died from being left desolate. A good example of someone like that would have been Ruth, right? Naomi, Ruth, what was the other daughter-in-law's name? Orpah, yeah. I, don't, I didn't know if you're right or wrong. I just couldn't remember the name, so I needed someone to throw that one out there to me this morning. Now, they were in Moab, and the practice there would have been different, and we read the book of Ruth going in a different way. But what this practice was, was that the husband's brother, so if the husband dies, the brothers are required to take this woman to wife and to produce offspring to carry on his line. The idea being this will keep her from being desolate and his portion of the family's uh, inheritance, the family's ownership doesn't go away. It stays under the family name there. This is what we read about in verse 28. The Sadducee said to Jesus, Moses wrote unto us, if any man's brother die having a wife and he die without children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up seed to his brother. Now, with that in mind, so they're going back to a teaching of Moses. So it's a, doc, it's a scriptural thing, right? They're not making up something. They are not talking about Caesar. They're going right to the word. Now, let me give you some, some wisdom there, Bible believers. You all are Bible thumpers, even. I don't know what that means. Like, do you like actually thump your Bibles? But you guys are real strict in the word, and I'm glad. But you can always, you can at times be right by the letter of the law and be wrong by the spirit of the law. Now, there's a great application that you can pull right from that verse. These guys were not putting out anything that was wrong. They weren't being against Scripture or outside of Scripture. They were working within the bounds of Scripture, but they were misusing the Scripture they were working within the bounds of. Let's be careful not to be that way. The, 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 the clue for you in that regard, do you always wonder, am I being this way or not? Just take it back to grace. Have I freely received grace? Yes. Am I freely bestowing grace on others through my use of the scriptures? That's a great, that's a great way to, to guide yourself there. So the Sadducees now present to Jesus this hypothetical. Verse 29. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. 
Now, at this point, the Leverett marriage would kick in. So the second took her to wife and died childless. The third took her, and in the manner of the seven also, and they left no children and died. Now, somebody said after reading these verses, they said, how ugly was this lady? <laughs> Just throw, throw that one out there to you. Some of you didn't laugh. You either offended at me saying that or you didn't get the joke. I'm just going to leave it right there. Last of all, the woman died. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of them is she? For seven had them to wife. Now, I can see someone like me, a Baptist preacher or some other person who likes to wrestle around in the, do- in the doctrines of Scripture, getting this question and pulling out their hair and saying, oh, no, how am I going to answer this? And what am I going to do? And what is right by the Scriptures? But I'm glad that Jesus doesn't quite go to that extent. In fact, he uses their question to work against them here. I'm going to give you three things from his answer. He gives his answer in verse 34 through 38. The first thing he teaches is that we shouldn't project earthly conditions on our supposed future state. Now, there are some things specifically laid out in Scripture as in eternity, this is what it's going to be like. Okay? But we must be careful that we don't. So this goes back to the old, are we going to fish in heaven or not? All right. How many of you are on the side of we're going to be fishing in heaven? It's going to be glorious fishing. You'll always get a bite. The weather will always be right. How many of you are on the side of we're not going to be fishing in eternity? You, some of you are liars. You argue with me over this. In the lobby, you said, you said there's going to be fishing in heaven. There's not going to be fishing in heaven. And you won't raise your hand in church for that. Well, Jesus teaches us here that we mustn't presume upon eternity because of the way things are currently. Now, notice him say this in verse 34 and 35. Jesus answering said unto them, the children of this world marry and are given in marriage. But they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, he speaks specifically to marriage not to teach us or even then, them then some big rule about marriage and eternity. Why does he speak about marriage? Because the question posed to him was in regards to marriage and eternity. There's a lot of bad doctrine that comes from these verses supposing that Jesus was in this debate with these guys to help us come to understand something else about marriage. Now I want to talk about that just a little bit. But before we get into that, I want you to be sure that Jesus' meaning is clear before you even start thinking about, are we going to be married or given in marriage in eternity? He says, Sadducees, you, you don't even believe in a resurrection. But you're asking me about marriage in a resurrection? See, Jesus' point is not so much about the marriage part of this. He just used that because that was their illustration. Jesus' point is primarily on, what do you mean is there going to be marriage in a resurrection? See, you could put anything in there. Fishing, cheeseburgers. Is there going to be cheeseburgers in heaven? There's a song that says there's cheeseburgers in paradise. Cool. I have to stop. That's got to be the end. All right. Stick to the script from this point on. He's saying to the Pharisees here, your logic is flawed. There will be, there will not be marriage like we know now then. No, he certainly teaches that. But his point is mostly on your logic is flawed in your thinking. You can't ask me about something you don't believe in and if this will be the case in something you don't believe in unless you actually believe in this. These are like those who would say, there is no God. What do you mean there is no God? Well, I don't believe there is a God. 
And the scripture says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And we would quote that and say, well, then you're being foolish if your premise is there is no God. What do you mean calling me foolish? Because you know inside yourself that there is a God. Nature, even nature has revealed it unto you that there is a God. So Jesus points out to the, the, the Sadducees here, your premise is flawed. You, you want to ask me about a resurrection that you operate as if there is no afterlife. You just die in this black and life is over. But obviously, you, you know that there is going to be a resurrection. Now, from here, he's going to keep laying out his case. And by the end, he's going to say to them, the very scriptures that you hold to, you throw out all the rest, which you shouldn't do. But the very ones you hold to also leave it necessary that there be a resurrection, an eternity. Now, he points out their false assumption. He points out what they believe to be his and others' false assumption. But but he does give some instruction on marriage. So he says, they which should be accounted worthy to obtain to that world. Now, I'm not exactly sure Jesus is meaning there. That could be in regards to, that could kind of be a, a poke in the side to these guys. Because who did they think were worthy to obtain that world? Should there be that world? They didn't believe in that world, but should there be an afterlife? Who's worthy other than them, right? This was the Pharisaical point of view. The scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, they all operated that way. And Jesus was constantly teaching them, it's not your religion that's going to get you there. There are going to be many who come to me in that day crying, Lord, Lord, we did mighty things in your name. And he's going to say, I don't know who you are. Depart, you're workers of iniquity. So most likely that is Jesus's point there. He could be, teaching us about the human understanding of the value of worth and how that it doesn't equate to the deistic, to the godly understanding of the value of worth, especially eternally. Maybe it's both of those things. But his point is, he says, the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So, will initially conclude that there will be no marriage in eternity. Now on that point, some of you rejoice and some of you grieve this thought. Being that it's closer to Valentine's Day, I would encourage you not to voice your opinion on that in this given instance. But what does Jesus not say here? He doesn't say that we will no longer know our spouse. In fact, you could probably quote me some verses here to help us to know that we probably will know our spouse. Jesus doesn't say we won't know our spouse. He doesn't say that there will be no connections in eternity similar to marriage. In fact, we know some verses like the bride of Christ is the church and Jesus is the groom. We know some connections in eternity that have something to do with what we know now as marriage. So what are we to do with this? Well, I think the conclusion has to be that whatever is then is going to be better than whatever is now. So if marriage is the best connection that we can come up with in this world now, which is a a true thing, what is it we cling to as humans about marriage? It's companionship, this relationship where you can just expect. In fact, legally, someone is bound to give you loyalty and love and affection. This is as close as we can get in our sin-cursed world, in our sin-cursed flesh to what is going to be. But that doesn't mean that is what is going to be in eternity. Let me read you from R.C. Sproul. He says, There will be significant changes in the kind of life that we will enjoy in heaven. However, very little is said about what changes will take place. 
But we know that whatever the change, it will bring with it an improvement. Our joy will be augmented far beyond what we can imagine. Now, that's a wonderful thought. You may say, I love my spouse very much. But even with the great love that you have toward this other human being, and, and we know Adam and Eve, right? It's not good for the man to be alone. We create a helper for him. And God put them together in the garden. This is a, a God-ordained type of a relationship. But even in that, no matter how much you love your husband or your wife, you're flawed in your ability to take that as far as it needs to go. Can anybody this morning testify and say, you know what, my spouse has had a perfect week. They've just been the greatest husband or the greatest wife ever. All week long, I, I, I'm so impressed, I can't believe it. None of us can say that. Surely none of us can say that. I guess I should say hopefully some of us are saying that, but truthfully, and if you were to stand up, remember there's probably some kids nearby that could testify otherwise. Jacob, you're going to get your dad in trouble laughing like that in church. So Jesus teaches us here. In eternity, relationships minus the curse will, will naturally transcend what we have now and what we know now. He says they'll, they'll ne- neither, neither be get married or given in marriage. I don't know how to tell you exactly what that's going to be or what it's not going to be. Most would just conclude there'll be no marriage in eternity. That's fine. We'll, we'll be married to Christ. That'll be the connection. And you say, well, then what about this lifelong love I've had for this other person? Well, all I can tell you in that regards is whatever eternity holds for that, it'll be better than what you have now. So I don't know what it'll be, but it's going to beat this. So that's fantastic to think about. Happy Valentine's Day, Shanae. That was what I had for you for this year. <laughs> so Jesus teaches us that we shouldn't project earthly conditions on the future state. Second, he teaches here in, in his uh, discourse with the Pharisees from verse 36, that eternal life is actually the life of the age to come. Because they said, this can't be. There can't be an eternal life there. But what does he say in verse 36? Neither can they die anymore. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? It takes me over to the Revelation that says, and there and there'll, there'll be no death. What a wonderful thought. No, no more death. They can't die anymore. Why? Because they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God, being the children of the resurrection. The Sadducees' question presented the need for a brother to act in keeping his dead brother's name alive. So they present this hypothetical situation to Jesus and say, well, you say you believe in a resurrection. Well, what about this? And remember, their motivation is not to get understanding from the rabbi. Their motivation is to trip the rabbi up with a question that he could not possibly answer. We mustn't forget that as we think through this. These guys have sat around and they've said, what's the situation we could put him in that he can't give an answer that will be seen as right? Now, you already know, verse 39, Master, thou hast well said. The scribes. What was the scribes' role? What was their duty? To keep the written scriptures pure. Make copies Keep them right. They, they knew the word. They were right on the word. They were, and they said to Jesus, you've answered well. So these guys lose in this contest. But they're trying to trip Jesus up. Jesus' answer here to this question of 
this brother tried to keep his dead brother's name alive and he wasn't able and this one wasn't able. And now we're in eternity and there's seven of these brothers who had this lady as a wife and what do we do? And Jesus says, this won't be an issue in the resurrection. You see, once again, they are presuming upon eternity an earthly thing. The first thing they presumed upon eternity, though they didn't believe in eternity, was marriage. And Jesus says, what you know now won't be then. The second thing they presume upon eternity is death. And Jesus said, that won't be an issue then. It's a wonderful thought. They're trying to act to keep their brother's name alive. And he's saying here, there will be no need for the effort to keep his brother's name alive because there will be no dying. You'll be like the angels. Now, Jesus doesn't say here, you will come angels. Probably that's the verse that most people misunderstand or have been taught to think that when a person dies, they become an angel. I get it. You go to the graveyard, lots of angels in the graveyard, lots of angels on tombstones, all of these types of things. Don't, don't be misunderstood here. You're, you're not going to become an angel. Don't receive that as an insult. Better than the angels. Step above. Something else. What he means here when he says you're, they are equal unto the angels is simply the angels don't die. So those in eternity will never die. Now, Jesus also doesn't reply anything else here in regard to the human state up against angels. There's a lot of unknown things said about angels that the Bible actually never reveals to us about their state of being, what they can do, can't do, what their, what their makeup is and is not. So throughout church history, well-meaning people have taken those unknown things and have applied them to this verse and said, well, this is what humans are going to become in eternity. It's not, that's not what it said here. In fact, you're basing it off of things that, that we do not know. So I don't want us to do that here. He's simply making the point that there will be no death. He says that, and then he follows that up with that statement, they're equal unto the angels. In what regard, they will not die. Now, this is just him supposing an item in his answer that the Sadducees do not believe to be, not only a resurrection, but also angels. So here they take it to a, a second level. They said, here's the hypothetical, was your answer? And Jesus answers first, well, number one, there won't be marriage in eternity, even though you don't believe in an eternity. Number two, there won't be death in eternity, even though you don't believe in eternity. And I'm proving this to you by the angels, but you don't believe in the angels. But angels are very scriptural, very biblical. And he goes on to say there, and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection? And we understand that to be what it, what it says. The third thing he teaches through his answer to the Sadducees is, that the believer already participates in this life, this eternal resurrection life. But we will not know the full expression of it, including bodily resurrection, until that age comes. So that's verse 37 and 38. Now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush, when he calleth the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. For he is not a God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. So to prove the resurrection... Jesus refers here back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses quotes the Lord as calling himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, the Sadducees need to stop and think. They need to realize here that in this quote, which is from a portion of Scripture that they would say we hold to here, that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are all dead. At this time... 
And, and, and them bringing this up, these men are all dead. So the necessary conclusion is that God must raise them from the dead for him to be their God. The Lord did not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the character of God then, we learn, demands a resurrection. He's the God of the living. So Jesus teaches these three things, and then we get a reply. Verse number 39, then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. So some of these approved what he had said. Verse 40, after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. These standing by are happy to see the Sadducees lose their argument. His wisdom has silenced all of his questioners. As I was reading this week, I came across something unique. The English poet Richard Crashaw testified to our Lord's triumph in this instance with a poem. And I thought his poem was great. He says, "'Twas time to hold their peace when they had ne'er another word to say. Yet is their silence unto thee the full sound of thy victory. They hold their peace is all the ways. To hold their peace is all the ways. These wretches have to speak thy praise." And that's a wonderful take on this. And shutting them up, Jesus brought glory to himself and to God through their silence. What a wonderful thought that is. We should take note of that as modern day Christians. Sometimes we think if there's not discourse or an argument going on, then we're not actually doing anything effective for the sake of the gospel. But sometimes the very silence toward those things is a testament to God. Now, Jesus wants to set the agenda himself from verse 41. He said unto them, How do they say that Christ is David's son? And David himself saith in the book of Psalms, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. David therefore calleth him Lord. How then he is he his son? Then in the audience of all the people, he said unto his disciples, Beware of the scribes which desire to walk in long robes and love greetings in the markets and the highest seats in the synagogues and the chief rooms at feast which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers, the same shall receive greater damnation. So he begins here testing them with Psalm 110. So you've tested me with Caesar, you've tested me with Moses. Let me test you with Psalm 110. And that's what he quotes here in verse 41, 42, and 43. How say they that Christ is David's son? David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. So he quotes this portion of scripture back to this group of people. The Jews generally agreed that the Messiah would be a son of David. That's pretty obvious from the old covenant texts. So Jesus presents to them the, the conundrum of how could he be David's Lord, which David said, and David's son at the same time. That's verse 44. David therefore calleth him Lord. How then is he his son? The Lord Jesus himself was the answer to to this question. So he presents this question as he stands there himself as the answer to this question. He was descended from David as the son of man, yet he himself was David's creator. So if you follow the old covenant text, down to the end, and then you get into the new covenant, the the first few texts lay out this lineage, and you find Jesus coming from the proper line here. And it's unique that he comes from the proper line through his mother and his father. That's That's a wonderful thing we find in Matthew and Luke's gospel. Then in John's gospel, 
we find him, not his earthly lineage, but sort of what we'll call his heavenly lineage. As John says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Right. So we we understand that this one who comes through Joseph's line, this one who comes through Mary's line, both descending from David's line was also God. So he is the God man. So he stands there before them, the answer to this question. He was descended from David's line, but he was also David's creator. Now, that is his posed question to them. Then he is the fulfillment of this posed question. And he he doesn't leave room for argument there. He just follows that up with a warning in verse number 45. It says, in the audience of all the people, he says this to his disciples. So to these who've been trying to trap him, I've answered you on Caesar. I've answered you on Moses. I've set you straight on who I claim to be as as regards to David. Now I'm going to tell you the truth about who you are and how you're operating. He says, beware of these scribes. Now you, you know from verse number 39, there are scribes right there. And these scribes have just said, good answer. This is not them saying, we believe you to be the Christ. This is them saying, you've won the debate. But back to these same people, he says to his disciples, you need to be uh, uh, beware of these guys. They desire to walk in long robes. They love greetings in the markets. They love the highest seats in the synagogues. They like the chief rooms at the feasts. But they are all the while devouring widows' houses. For a show, they make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnations. They affect their religiousness through the way they dress. They love to be called by these distinguished titles as they walk through the marketplaces. They maneuver in public gatherings to get to prominent places so they can be seen as something and somebody. And all the while, how are they actually operating? They're kind of building up their own little legacy to themselves on the backs of poor widows. It's quite an accusation. And he says, you don't always notice what they're doing because they cover up how wicked they are by these long prayers that they offer as if, boy, it's really impressive that they can pray that long and that they know that many biblical words or scholarly words or whatever the words were that they were using there. Jesus says here, this kind of hypocrisy will be punished all the more severely. So this is Jesus and the Pharisees. The chief priests, the scribes, the Sadducees, whoever else you want to throw in there. They question him on Caesar, which you remember was a a good time for us to consider. Am I rendering to things of Caesar the things, am I rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but more importantly, the things of God to God? And we thought about the biblical model of the home, the biblical model of the church, the biblical model of marriage, the biblical model model of the sanctity of human life. And then it moved to Moses and David. And as I've talked through these things, I don't think any of us here today are in the habit of trying to entrap Jesus. But I think we can take his teaching here and build a more eternal perspective in our lives. What is it you're set to do this week and this year? And why is it that you want to do those things? Is it for temporal gain? Is it for personal legacy? 
Is it for eternal purposes? With that, you need to think through like the Sadducees should have thought through. How do you view eternity and the resurrection? Are you, are you living as if I've got, a, I've got a limited amount of time and whatever I don't get done, it's just over when this life ends? Are you living saying, I, I've got forever. And whatever I can't get done in this sin-cursed world during this sin-cursed life, though I've been redeemed, I, I do what God tells me to do now, but, but I've got eternity to serve Him and to, to live for Him and with Him. How's your perspective? Is it a temporal perspective or is it an eternal perspective? Are you wrapped up in temporal things? I think for many of us, the cares of life sort of have us. We can't think of the spiritual things because we're too busy thinking of the cares of life. Maybe you do this in a very innocent way. Maybe you sit here this morning and say, I just love my wife so much. While all the while not realizing that that very thing is the epitome of allowing the cares of life to have you. Do you love your wife so much that you're afraid to surrender to the biblical model for the home? Do you love your wife so much that you're afraid to surrender to the biblical model for work? We've been studying that at 930 on Sunday mornings during our Bible study. There's a biblical model for work in the scriptures. But I think many of us are so afraid we'll let down our wife, we'll let down our kids, we'll we'll be embarrassed in front of the people we attend worship with. But in reality, what's going to happen is there's going to come a day that we're going to stand before God empty handed because everything we've done is burned up. And then how will that be for eternity? We're much too wrapped up in the temporal things. So I think this passage, it's difficult to work through. And, and we know the outcome. We know these guys ultimately temporarily win. They get Jesus. They, they beat Jesus. They torture him and crucify him. And it's a sad thing for us to think about. But we certainly don't want to be living that way now. We don't want to be living like these people. Allow this to be a time to refocus on the eternal. Maybe you're like the Sadducees. You just struggle to believe all this to be true. Angels, eternal life, resurrection. Did I struggle with all of that? It's easy for you to say, obviously this life and this reality are true, so I'm just going to put my focus right there. But I would tell you, hindsight will eventually teach you that that was a short-sighted way to look at things. You're only viewing half of the picture when God's word has given you a full view of the picture. I invite you this morning to have faith. Having faith in something beats assuming that there will be nothing. What have you lost if you're wrong? Oh, but you hold on to your faith in nothing and look what you've lost if you're wrong. An eternity. So whether through Caesar, whether through taxes, Moses in eternity, David and lordship, these Pharisees were trying their best to discredit Jesus. I wonder this morning, does Jesus have credibility with you? And don't just let the, the fact that you're here be your proof. Let how you're living your life and the decisions you're making, the plans that you have, let that be your proof.
Let's reconsider our eternal perspective this morning. As we think about this group of people in here, I just want to call them for a minute the religious. Their long robes and their long prayers, their fancy religious seats in these high places, all financed on the backs of those who could not afford it. That in itself is the trap of religion. None of those things are necessary for a relationship with Christ or to worship God. So I'd invite you this morning to leave all that beside and embrace a relationship with Jesus instead. Let's stand and pray.